Hey everyone, it's Rachel with a quick announcement before we get to your podcast episode today. Our 2023 Local Motive Tour is kicking off on September 14th, and I really don't want you guys to miss it. Here's a quote from a locomotive attendee, Richard. He says, I did the locomotive tour a couple years ago and found I was using the ideas from all of the stops when I would have conversations about our community. Strong Towns does a good job putting these together and they involve people who are dedicated and skilled and who live in all parts of the country. Thanks Richard for that feedback. Hopefully that's a little extra to convince you if you're on the fence about joining us. These events take place every Thursday at 12 p.m. Central from September 14th through November 2nd. You'll get an hour of educational workshop featuring a Strong Town speaker plus a guest speaker. And of course, afterwards, you'll get access to the recording and a bunch of resources. Plus, you can join us for our new feature this year, the after party on Fridays with my colleague Norm, where you can keep chatting about the topic discussed at that week's session. So you definitely want to get your ticket now because the first session, which is called, is this development worthwhile? Let's do the math is going to feature Chuck and Joe Minicosi of urban three. And I can already tell you that it is currently our most popular stop from the number of people that have signed up. So I'm thinking others probably don't want to miss out on that one either. A couple of other highlights. We've got a session called four freeway fighting tactics featuring two advocates, Allie Smither and Susan Graham. They've been fighting against the I-45 project in Houston, and Chuck Marone will join them. Another session is called The Small Steps That Can Make a Big Impact on Your Transit System, and it features transit expert Jerome Horn, plus our staff writer and, I believe, self-described transit nerd, Asha Mielasko. And it's not all about, you know, math and transportation and these more hard subjects. We've also got a session, probably one of the ones I'm most excited about, which is called How to Host a Neighborhood Walk. This is going to be led by my colleague, John, and a bright young Strong Towns leader, Jacob, who's been running these really powerful community walks to get to know neighbors and understand issues in his city. So that's probably enough of me blabbing. Important point is get your ticket now at strongtowns.org slash local motive. All right, let's get to your podcast episode. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I really do not like speed cameras. My problem with speed cameras is not the problem that I think a lot of people with speed cameras have. A lot of people who don't like speed cameras talk about them as, you know, big brother, the government coming in, just trying to raise revenue. You know, the idea of the, the state monitoring people I'm not going to suggest that those concerns are invalid, but those are not the animating concerns that I have. The animating concerns that I have are kind of most clearly expressed in a debate that I had on Twitter uh, in the last couple of weeks, one that kind of blew up. And, you know, I've been getting all these invitations now to come on different podcasts and different shows and talk about all the ills of speed cameras. It kind of made me into, at least in the Twitter space, 
you know, the anti-speed camera guy, at least for a while, and at least amongst a group of like urban advocates who believe very strongly that speed cameras are the answer. I wrote in a tweet that speed cameras are not only not the answer, I don't even think they're part of an answer. But my dislike for speed cameras has really very little to do with, I think, the standard critique of them. And so I wanna take a little bit of time and I wanna talk about my critique of speed cameras. As a way to do that, I wanna take what I think are the best arguments for speed cameras, and I want to give them voice in what I think is the most authentic and strongest case to be made for speed cameras. And then I wanna talk about why I think there are shortcomings in those observations. The first argument in favor of speed cameras is that they slow traffic. In fact, the initial article that I reacted to said, you know, speed cameras have been deployed in New York City. Uh, they are showing results. We have a 30% reduction in speed. See, they're working. And if you followed the threads or if you read the article even, there was a certain like gloating element to it of, you know, all these dumb people who, don't follow the science and the math and get how cameras work and are you know, being overly critical or trying to protect themselves because they don't want a speeding ticket. These people you know, hate their fellow man, uh, are willing to drive fast and kill people, and they're the problem. I found this narrative divisive. I found it you know, kind of trite. And I also just found it not based on really any data or any insights that you could draw the conclusions that were being drawn from. Let me make the, the argument in the best way possible though. Cameras slow traffic. The idea is that if we put out a speed camera, if we put out an automated enforcement, if we have people who are driving over a set amount in terms of their speed, and we send them a ticket and fine them, you know, actually have some type of enforcement mechanism, that over time, people will recognize that this is taking place and they will slow down. When they slow down, that reduction in speed will have a positive impact on safety. Because as we all know, the faster people are driving, the more violent impacts are, and the more uh, likely someone is to die in a crash. It's also correlated in certain instances, not on highways, but on like local streets. Speed is actually correlated to some degree or another with crashes. And so if we can put out and deploy cameras, we can reduce speeds, reduce the number of crashes, reduce the severity of crashes, and have an overall positive impact on safety. That is why we should do this. That is a very simple argument. And it's one that I think our brains can naturally wrap around, like we can get our minds wrapped around that particular argument. And that argument is in a lot of ways very comforting to us, right? We put out a speed camera, there's a degree of enforcement, violators get punished. Uh, that punishment has a cultural effect that when someone gets in their car, they're then prompted to drive more slowly. I get it. It's a simple narrative. I think it's 
too simple and I think it's wrong. Let me talk a little bit in specific about the study that was being quoted because I think if I just talk through what actually is being attested here, you will not feel like this is a huge safety increase. And that's before we talk about any other factors. What this study said is that in places where speed cameras had been deployed for an extended period of time, we could look in a sense at a couple of controls, right? Like here's one period and then here's a subsequent period. And what we see in that is that between the initial period where tickets were issued for people who were going more than 10 miles over the speed limit, so 11 miles an hour plus over the speed limit, what we witnessed, what we experienced was that that number of people declined by 30%. So let me give you some like specific numbers to think about this. Let's say that on a given street, we had in a day, a hundred people that went more than 10 miles an hour over the posted speed limit. Now we will have, instead of a hundred people, we will have 70 people who are going more than 10 miles an hour over the posted speed limit. If the posted speed limit is 25 miles an hour, you will have 100 people who used to drive 36 miles an hour or faster. You will now have that number be only 70 people instead of 100 who are driving 35 miles an hour and faster. That does not feel like safety to me. And I guess in a very narrow sense, you could argue that, you know, there's 30, in my scenario, there's 30 fewer people driving, you know, more than 10 miles over the speed limit. And that that in of itself is a good, is a net good. I find that to be almost like wholly superficial, especially when you think about how that number would be derived. I'm giving you numbers of 170 to get your minds wrapped around it, but the numbers are gonna vary from location to location to location. The average reduction was 30%. When we think about that 30%, what we need to recognize is that it doesn't take very many people driving slower during peak times to make a whole lot of people drive slower. When you are talking about peak times, right? A, a time when a street is congested or then there's a lot of traffic. And actually don't think about the worst congestion where you're bumper to bumper, but think about those kind of shoulder areas because bumper to bumper traffic is really safe, right? I mean, that, that's one of the, the kind of unspoken things in traffic safety is that when, when we have really, really high levels of congestion and people are hardly able to go anywhere, it's actually really, really safe for everybody. Nobody's killing anybody. Nobody's running into anybody at speed. You might have some road rage. You might have some people who uh, get into fender benders and get a little upset, but you, you don't have people running people over, right? Where you get that is in kind of those shoulder areas and then most particularly at night in very low volume times. That's when your fatalities happen because that's when people are driving really fast. Well, if, if you're looking at averages, and one of the other arguments here was that the average speed went down. If you're looking at averages, during those congested times and during those shoulder times, if, if you just have one person who decides, I don't want to get a ticket, I'm going to drive, you know, 34 instead of 35, or it actually would be 35 instead of 36 miles per hour through this corridor. 
that will slow everybody behind them down, right? And so when you're doing like an average, you know, or a percentage, what you're looking at is a denominator now that is being artificially, a, a denominator of the number of people driving through that is being artificially kind of manipulated by the fact that one or two people can change the entire flow of traffic. Maybe this is a win for you. That's great. But what we're really looking at is how does that correlate to safety? I'm going to point out two things here. And the, the one I alluded to already is the idea that most fatal crashes, most traumatic injuries are not happening during peak times. You may be out on the street and you may be annoyed by traffic during peak times. I'm with you. Uh, you may have people who are aggressive drivers who yell at you, who are, are unfriendly. I, I'm with you. Like, I hear that. I experience that. But what you don't have during peak times is a lot of people getting killed. Peak times tend to uh, have high levels of congestion, high levels of bumper to bumper. A lot of people, so people who are walking and who are biking tend to be surrounded by other people who are walking and biking, thus increasing the levels of safety. Where you see people get hit, where you see trauma and traumatic injuries and death are on those shoulder areas. The areas where you have, in a sense, free-flowing traffic, so traffic that is flowing at kind of, you know, unhindered conditions. There's, there's nobody in front of someone who is forcing them artificially to slow down. People can drive the speed they feel comfortable with. And you have, in a sense, a reduced number of bikes, people walking. You have, in a sense, you can get a little bit numb to the idea that there would be anybody else in the space. When we look at just the raw data of the total number of tickets given out is down 30%. That says really nothing, nothing informative or nothing substantive about what is going on in those most dangerous time spots. And it's very easy to see how the data would spit out 30% based just on changes or modest changes to peak periods without saying anything about the condition of the driver in these off-peak times. People drive the speed they feel comfortable driving. We've talked about this over and over and over again on this podcast that, you know, when streets are designed to be very forgiving, driving as a system one mental activity is one that you do without really engaging in the act that you're doing. I know that makes a lot of activists really mad. It makes a lot of people really angry because they feel like when you get behind an automobile, you are responsible for what you do in that car. And in a sense, I agree with that. Yet I also understand that we have to design for the humans we have, not the humans we wish we had. And there isn't anyone who's listening to this podcast that has driven a car that has not, while they're driving, had their mind wander a little bit. Listen to the radio, sing along with a song, talk to someone in the passenger seat. I'm not even talking about things that are reckless. I'm talking about things that normal people do all the time that we don't consider reckless. These are things that you are able to do as a driver because your brain is not fully engaged in driving. And your brain is not fully engaged in driving because it doesn't have to be in order to operate a motor vehicle. Think about your own driving. We talked about this last year and earlier this year when we started talking about the, the reckless driver meme, the idea that reckless driving is causing this massive increase 
in crashes. Uh, the idea that we can look at people's behavior when they're behind the wheel and say, you know, someone who is driving, who is listening to the radio or having their mind wander and doesn't get into a crash is, you know, lucky or a reckless driver with no consequence. But someone who does get in a crash, then they are, in a sense, pathological, right? There's something broken about them. There's something dastardly and, and devilly about them. And I, I think if we are honest with ourselves, we look back and we say, well, the difference between the two is really a roll of the dice, right? It's really a, a matter of luck. What our street design does is it changes the parameters by which those snake eyes on the roll of the dice come up. The very rare occurrence. When we lower the average speed during peak periods of time, we don't really change the dice at all in the most dangerous periods of time because we still have people who will drive the speed they feel comfortable driving, even if it results in a traffic ticket, right? I mean, we have a 30% reduction. That's not a 50%, it's not a 70%, that's a 100% reduction. You will never get a 100% reduction because you're relying on, in a sense, repeat offenders changing their behavior. And that's not how traffic works. That really is not how traffic works, particularly in non-peak hours. People take shortcuts, they take different routes, they're driving in different places, you have people who are visitors. All of this stuff combines to create in those off-peak hours the same exact situation you had before the cameras. I don't see an improvement in safety. Let me point out another thing. When we're looking at the data and what it shows, it shows a 30% reduction in the number of tickets given out between one time period and another. I wanna point out that this is not saying that people are driving at lethal speeds and now they're driving at safe speeds. You were having tickets given out for people who were driving more than 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. So if your speed limit was 25, which I'm just gonna point out is also itself a lethal speed, Right, if we're talking about city streets and we want city streets where speeds are not lethal, we are having speeds of between 15 miles an hour. Really, 50 miles an hour is the speed you need to be at. You may be able to approach 20 miles an hour, but you're certainly within that 15 to 20 mile an hour range. So we already have legal speeds that are above lethal speeds. So you can drive a vehicle at lethal speeds legally you can drive at 10 miles an hour over lethal speeds and not get a ticket. And so what is being said in this data is that you have people who are driving more than 10 miles an hour over the legal speed, which itself is far over the lethal speed. And that number of people have been reduced by a modest amount, 30%. I don't see the improvement here. I mean, now, yes, if you get hit by someone going 45 miles an hour versus someone going 35 miles an hour, there is a difference. Granted, I'll give that to you, right? But the vast majority of, of those crashes are going to result in death either way. If you ask me, would I rather be hit by someone driving 45 or someone driving 35? I would say 
35. And if that's what safety advocates are arguing, okay, I don't have a counter argument for that. It is better to get hit, you know, at 35 than at 45. But, you know, would you say the same thing about, would you rather get hit at, at, you know, a hundred miles an hour instead of 110 miles an hour? I mean, either way, you're going to be dead. If you get hit at 36 miles an hour, or if you get hit at 26 miles an hour, you're likely to be dead, almost certain to be dead in both instances. It's only once you start to get below 20 miles an hour that you see that really change. And so the notion that this is working, that somehow we put out these speed cameras, we have you know tickets that are being issued at for people who drive more than 10 miles over the posted speed limit, which is over the lethal speed, that somehow a reduction in that number is a net increase in safety. If it is, it is so marginal as to not matter. I don't get it. I want to point out one more thing about speed cameras. And that is this idea that speed cameras themselves rely on, in a sense, a cultural knowledge being built up. I think even the most ardent supporters of speed cameras will say that driving is a system one behavior that people will drive the speed they feel comfortable driving. And that what speed cameras do is they activate people's kind of awareness. And so they pay more attention to the speed they're going and then slow down. That is, I think, the ideal scenario is that someone who has gotten a speeding ticket in a corridor, knows someone who's gotten a speeding ticket in a corridor or is made aware of a speeding camera in a certain location will engage the system two part of their brain think more deeply about what they're doing as they drive. And as a result of that deeper thought, pay attention and slow down. That's kind of, I think, the the steel man argument for cameras that goes along with the idea that they slow traffic. I don't think that is a very likely human reaction. I get how that is one human reaction, but I'll give you two other human reactions. One, and I think the most obvious one, is you just slow down at the camera. You see this all the time. I've experienced this. Like I remember being in a Dallas suburb once and there was a sign that said, speed camera ahead. You know, like, hey, we're learning you a speed camera. And I was like, whoa. So I looked down at my speedometer and I slowed down. And then I saw the speed camera. And then when I got past the speed camera, I stopped paying attention to my speed. Now, I'm not telling you I sped right back up and I went back to top speed, but what it did is it for a moment jarred me into system two. I went into system two, I adjusted my behavior, and then I went back to system one. I think it's very likely that people who know the cameras are there, who have learned, in a sense, where they're at, yeah, you you might get fewer tickets issued. You might have fewer people who are driving more than 10 miles an hour over the posted speed limit. But that doesn't mean that they're slowing down. It means that they slow down for your camera. And I guess you could argue that for that instant, that place, there would be an increase in safety. Okay. In some dimensions, in other dimensions, if you have people like rapidly slowing down, I wonder how many rear end collisions there are. That was not part of the, the data set. It was just about the overall you know, rate of, of violations given. Let me give you another, I think, natural driver behavior. If I know a speed camera is on this route and there's another route, I'm gonna take the other route. 
I'm just going to avoid the place with the speed camera. That to me is a very like rational human reaction. And so you haven't really reduced speeding. You've kind of displaced speeding into a different location. You've put a higher volume of traffic into different places. I get the argument that if we have a camera out, it will slow people and slowing traffic is good. I think that argument is overly simplistic. And I think the correlation between that argument and a reduction in crashes, a reduction in trauma, an overall increase in safety is dubious at best. Now, before I go on to the second thing, the second debate here, one of the arguments that was given back to me is that, well, yeah, this is why we need more cameras. We need ubiquitous cameras everywhere. And I am going to acknowledge, as I acknowledge on Twitter, that I think that that would overcome a lot of the concerns that I have about the data, right? If you had cameras everywhere and people couldn't avoid them, then I think your data would not have the noise or the, the complications, right? I also think you would have to have the camera issue tickets when people were speeding, not at the, you know, more than 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. And I think you'd actually have to, if you really were interested about safety, I think you'd have to lower the speed limit to non-lethal levels. But if you're going to make the case that speed cameras and the data we collect at speed cameras somehow validates a safety thesis, you would have to show one of two things. You would either have to show that one, we are blanketing the city with cameras and we are recording people's speeds and we are seeing an overall reduction in speeding because of you know the, the ticketing and enforcement. Even if you weren't doing enforcement everywhere, you'd have to be able to kind of show that everywhere. And that is not the case. Or two, you would have to see an overall decrease in the amount of fatal crashes and traumatic injuries. And the very article that I'm quoting from said, you know, despite this rosy, happy data about speed cameras working, we still see the number of crashes going up and the number of fatalities going up and the number of fatal or traumatic injuries going up. The second argument that has been made that I think has some validity when it comes to traffic cameras is that they're in a sense a Band-Aid that we'll put in place until we can actually go out and do the redesign of streets. And the argument goes like this, Chuck, you might not like speed cameras. I don't like them either. I don't think they're the best solution, but redesign of streets is gonna take decades. To go out and re-engineer and rebuild and make streets safe is gonna take decades. And so this is a temporary Band-Aid that will get us something closer to safety until we can get out and do the work that we need to do. Let me try to steel man that argument as best as I can. Because I, I just spent a bunch of this podcast talking about why I think speed cameras are ineffective. And that would obviously apply here. You know, you, you have a gaping chest wound, you apply a Band-Aid, you know, does it make things better? Not, not really. I think it's not up to the job, right? I think it's ineffective. But I think it could be effective. And, and as I just said, if, if you were gonna do ubiquitous camera enforcement across the entire city, and you were very clear about this, and if people were going over the speed limit, they were gonna get a ticket. If you were prepared to do that, then I think you know this idea of it being an effective Band-Aid until we do redesign, I don't buy it as a solution. I don't think that it really gets you to where you need to be, but I could see where as a temporary type thing, it might kind of bridge the gap a little bit. 
in order for that to be true, you would need to have a hyper dedication to redesigning streets, to re-engineering streets. You, you would have to have a real kind of consensus from top to bottom within your community that streets needed to be redesigned to be intuitively safer, to intuit to the driver the speed that they should be driving and that that speed would need to be a safe speed. Here's the reality as I see it. Let me say, if you could do that, I think you can make the case that you know, speed cameras as Band-Aid makes a lot of sense. The problem is nobody's doing that. New York City's not doing that. No other city in North America is doing that. I saw some things, some advocate was saying that like in Australia, we've done this. Maybe, I don't know. I'm telling you, no North American city has done this, not even New York City. What is being done, I think, is this thing that gets us to the evolutionary dead end. I wanna describe that here because this is the biggest fear that I have about speed cameras. If we had a consensus to do redesign of streets, I think that that is like the wrong approach in and of itself. Not that I think redesign is wrong, but I think the idea that we would take our existing bureaucracies the way that they are created now with capital improvements plans and 30 year you know road maintenance plans and that we would say as part of that you know overall approach that we have right now we are going to in the coming decades systematically redesign and rebuild all of our streets to be safer and in the meantime we're going to issue tickets automated to drivers who exceed the speed limits as a way to get to safety. You would have to, in a sense, have that plan in place before you start down this path of the cameras in order for that to have credibility, be, be a credible argument. Because once you start down the path of cameras, what happens is you eliminate all the urgency and all the motivation to actually go out and fix the streets. And I know that seems a little contradictory because I said, you know, it's not working. And I, I don't think it is working. But I think what happens is that the public works departments, the police departments, the engineers, the people who, in a sense, gave us this system, delivered us the system, and then resist changes within it, are very, very comfortable with a paradigm that says the driver is screwing up. The driver is the one who's wrong here. Put the onus on the driver but they are wholly resistant. I mean, like every fiber of their body is resistant to the idea, to the intellectual concept that their street design has induced these higher speeds. And so you can get consensus around the automated enforcement. It is easy to get consensus around automated enforcement compared to the idea of redesign. And it's easy because it doesn't challenge any of the engineer's precepts. It doesn't challenge any of the designer's precepts. It puts all of the onus, all of the blame on the driver, AKA the victim. And it places none of the responsibility on the people who have actually delivered this, you know, misengineered, misbuilt, this dangerous public infrastructure. When we do that, 
what we do is we create this evolutionary dead end. We reinforce the notion that the driver is wrong and that everybody else has really like no role in this problem. We also reinforce the idea that changes to streets should take a long time. Now, if you're going to dig up a street and move the curb and completely redo the drainage, yeah, if your plan is to do that in every street, that's going to take a, a long time. It's going to take a, a long, long time. But if your idea is to go out and change the geometry of a street to make it safer, um, we can do that overnight. We can do that like right now. Like you and I can go out, grab some cones, grab some, uh, you know, orange barrels, some bollards. I mean, we, we do this on construction projects all the time. You have a water main break and uh, people will run out with cones and stuff and set up and have a temporary redesign of a street up in five minutes so they can start dealing with the water main break. Like we know how to do this right now. Why aren't we out doing this right now? Well, we're not out doing it because we are more comfortable in a paradigm that blames the driver. We are more comfortable in a paradigm that blames the users of the system and the mistakes they make, as opposed to look at the actual system itself and how it induces these levels of crashes, these levels of fatalities, these levels of injury. If we go down the route of speed cameras, I feel like the most pernicious thing we do is we give additional license to the idea that the driver is to blame. Now, I know that there's some of you screaming at your speakers right now saying, how is the driver not to blame? And, and let, me, let me parse some English for you. I'm not saying that the driver bears no responsibility. I'm not saying that the driver does not have responsibility here. And certainly there are ways that drivers act in aggressive manners. There are ways drivers act in reckless manners. There are things that drivers do that contribute to crashes. Absolutely. But the idea that in an environment that in a sense facilitates condones, I think even panders to those worst instincts of drivers in an environment that is essentially designed to accommodate the most deviant, the most aggressive, the most angry, aggressive kind of drivers that there are. That's, that's what we have built, right? We, we have built a system that accommodates them, that in a sense panders to them. In that system, you can still look and say, yeah, the driver bears responsibility here, but it's hard, hard, hard not to put, you know, the, the vast overwhelming bulk of the responsibility onto the people that delivered that system. If we have an obesity epidemic and we're trying to deal with that in our city and we bring in obesity experts, and they say, well, what we need to do is we need to have Oreos available on every corner of every street, but then we should have signs or a fine for you know, every fifth one if people take more than five Oreos or something like that. We could say, you should have self-control, you should have restraint, but we also have to acknowledge that like we've put sugary snacks on every corner. That may be the biggest part of the problem here. Well, for drivers, we have put, in a sense, the equivalent of the sugary snack on every street. We've made every street wide. We've made every street available to be aggressive on. We have, in a sense, 
created intersections that give dominance to certain groups at certain times, reinforcing the system of hierarchy and, and domination in these spaces. We have engineered these spaces to be very, very aggressive and to forgive the drivers who screw up in these spaces. There is nothing that keeps us from going out tomorrow and changing that. There's nothing that prevents us from taking cones and barrels and paint and straw bales and, you know, uh, computer programming of signalized intersections, you know, reprogramming them in different ways. There is no, nothing, nothing, nothing that prevents us from doing this overnight and utterly transforming our streets tomorrow on a shoestring budget. When we go down the road of speed cameras, we enter this evolutionary dead end where you know, we can show at the cameras a lowering of speed. We can put the rest of the blame on these super deviant drivers. We can take kind of the slow path towards reconstruction. And you know what? We weren't that committed to it anyway. So, you know, everyone becomes a fight over we can't lose that parking spot or we can't, you know, change that street geometry or what if we create congestion? All those same arguments that we have all the time. I get the desire to want to do something. I get the desire to feel helpless in you know, this bureaucracy that is so resistant to change. But speed cameras are stalling. They're not actually progress. Part of what we've argued here at Strong Towns is that local officials who really care about traffic safety, local officials who really care about making things safe, should delegate authority not to engineers, but to street design teams street design teams that would include engineers, but would include a basket of professionals and technical and non-technical experts that would come in and help set a different kind of groundwork for how we build streets and how we manage streets. We've advocated that cities should adopt crash analysis studios. We've been modeling this now every month this year. We're about to launch a course about starting your own crash analysis studio. We don't think that the answer here is to somehow fix the engineering profession. We think the answer here is to, in a sense, go around them. There is nothing that requires you to have your engineer design your streets. You need an engineer to sign the plans. You need an engineer to help you with, you know, the depth of the bituminous surfacing and, and that kind of thing. You need an engineer to help you out with the drainage. But the, the engineer is not the one who is going to tell you the values that should be applied to the street. They're not the ones that are gonna set the priorities with the conflicts that you have. They're not the ones that are gonna say, you know, let's skimp on the bike lane and make that less safe uh, so we, that we can have wider lanes. They're not the ones who are gonna say, well, you know, let's tear down these buildings so that we have greater traffic flow instead of having less traffic flow and, and keeping the buildings. It's a set of values that really need to come out of a more deliberative process that don't need to be given to and should not be given to an engineer. Speed cameras keep us on the same path. They take us further down this path away from reform and towards something that looks more like an evolutionary dead end where we just double down on the idea that drivers and the users of the system are the ones primarily, almost exclusively to blame. I'm going to point out one other thing, and this is going to give comfort to the people that talk about speed cameras as just being a revenue tool. 
Part of the evolutionary dead end here is that there is a revenue stream associated with speed cameras. And in times when budgets are really tight and when our budget's not really tight, in times when local governments are desperate for revenue sources, anything that we do that has a revenue source attached to it, that is in a sense like free cash flow, right? Like pay for the camera and now all the rest of the fine money is yours. This is really, really seductive, really seductive. And it makes it hard. And I'm not saying that cities won't do it. And I'm not saying that humans are incapable of wrestling with this and figuring it out, but it puts a higher bar in place to removing the cameras at some point in the future. It creates less of a sense of urgency and more of a sense of kind of uh, accommodation to have the camera in place when it's paid for and it's paying revenue and it's really, really profitable. You see this in all walks of life. It's really hard to get a man to change their mind about something when their job depends on them not changing their mind. That's an Upton Sinclair quote. And I, I think it applies here, right? It's really hard to get us to remove speed cameras when someone's job, someone's revenue stream, someone's budget item depends on the speed cameras being in place. There's always an excuse to keep them. There's never an excuse to deal with the underlying problem. And I, that resistance to actually fixing things is one of the things that deeply bothers me about speed cameras. Let me steel man the third argument then. The third argument that I think is, is good about speed cameras or strong about speed cameras. And that is the idea that we need consequences to slow down drivers. Drivers have a license to operate a vehicle. Uh, They're out there operating in the public realm. If there is not a fine for breaking the law, then drivers will break the law with impunity. In all realms of life, and come on, Chuck, you're a conservative. You understand tit for tat. You understand game theory. You, you get the idea that, you know, if people can break the law with impunity, they will eventually break the law and we will have lawlessness. We need a system that punishes drivers for breaking the law. I hope I gave that a steel man approach. There's a part of me that, that gets that, right? I think the only thing is, I think it should apply to the, the deviant. I think it should apply to the person who's way outside of normal behavior. We can go out on any street in the United States. I mean, really, we can go out on almost, I would bet 95% of streets in North America. And we can stand there with a speed you know, measuring device. And especially, you know, if we're hidden, if we're, we're hidden off to the side somewhere where we're not going to affect driver behavior, we're just measuring what people are driving through an area. What we will find is that in most free flow conditions, people are driving faster than the speed limit. I've seen these videos where, you know, the police are out lamenting, oh, the, the culture of recklessness, drivers driving too fast. Look, Everybody, and I've seen this before, everybody on the street is speeding. Here's one speeder, two speeder, three speeders, all these people, every single driver here is going over the speed limit. Okay, if everybody is breaking the rule, the rule's wrong. Something is not correct here. Something is not right. This is where we get into this idea of the 85th percentile speed. And I know this conversation makes advocates mad and I feel like it makes them mad because they don't understand it. I also feel like it makes engineers dumb because they understand it deeply, but 
they misapply it. They continually misapply it. The 85th percentile speed is saying, what is the speed that the typical person's going to drive here? What you do is you go out and you measure the speed that people are driving, the speed that 85% of people are driving at that speed or below, that becomes your speed limit. And what that essentially is, is this is a speed that people feel comfortable driving. Remember, I've said many times, people will drive under natural conditions, they'll drive the speed they feel comfortable. And you generally want people driving the speed they feel comfortable driving because then they won't be, you know, you won't get rear end crashes. Everybody's kind of more predictable. Traffic flows at like a, a predictable, safe speed. The most dangerous thing in a traffic stream is not speed. It's differential in speed. If everybody's driving 80 miles an hour in the same direction, things are relatively safe. If you've got someone driving 80 miles an hour and then someone all of a sudden is driving 50, uh, that's really, really dangerous. Really, really dangerous. Differential in speed is the problem. And so the 85th percentile speed asks this like humble question. We've designed this thing. We're now going to go out and see how humans react to it. Advocates get mad at this because engineers will set artificially high speed limits. They'll go out and they'll say, well, you know, everybody's driving 45 here. And so we're going to set the speed limit at 45. And the advocates will say, well, a safe speed here is 20. Like, why are we doing 45? It should be 30 or 35. Like, let's lower it. And the engineers resist that because they say it's not safe. And guess what? In that condition, the engineer is right. It's not safe. It's not safe because the street design is telling people drive 45. If you put up a sign that says drive 30 or drive 25, what you're doing is you're creating speed differential. You're making the area more dangerous. You might lower the average speed, but you are creating a, a massive differential between the people who would drive normal, what, they're, what the design would tell them to drive, and people who would drive in system two, kind of hyper aware of what the regulatory environment is. That difference creates a lot of danger in the system. The way that enforcement works is if enforcement is done in instances where people are violating the norm. If everybody is driving 50 miles an hour, then you can't have the speed limit at 40 miles an hour. You actually have to wrestle with the idea that people are driving 50. The way engineers misapply this is if 50 is not a safe speed, if 50 is your 85th percentile speed, but that speed is clearly not safe in this place, you have designed your street wrong. You're actually sending the wrong signal to drivers. You are inducing drivers to drive at a speed that is unsafe. Consequences for bad behavior is important. It has to be for deviant behavior, right? It has to be for behavior that deviates from the norm. If the norm is speeding, that is a design problem. And it's not a problem that can be overcome with enforcement. Certainly not consensus enforcement. If the argument for speed cameras is that we need that enforcement feedback loop, we need that, you know, police are ineffective, uh, police are rarely out there, they can't keep up, people drive with impunity because they, they know they're very unlikely to get a ticket. If that's your argument, like, I agree with that. I totally agree with that. But it should be an enforcement environment that deals with the deviant driver. 
If you go out and your speed, your median speed, your average speed, your 85th percentile speed is above what a safe speed is, enforcement is not going to get you to that. And beyond that, enforcement is actually not fair. It's actually not, and I don't mean fair in like a, um, you do the crime, you do the time, Chuck. Like you break the law, you should have to pay. That's not the kind of fairness I'm doing. I'm talking about fairness as in like a consistent system a system that sets people up to succeed instead of sets people up to fail. We have created a transportation system that has set people up to fail. And if you overlay that with a speed camera system that you know randomly finds them when in certain key places they are going you know, over the speed limit, this is a system that reinforces the idea that we're setting people up to fail. What does a good approach look like? I said speed cameras are not the solution, and I said they're not even part of a solution. That might have been a little bit strong because I, I do think that speed cameras can play a role. It wouldn't be the first thing that I would do, and it wouldn't be the way I would approach it, but I, I feel like there is a way to utilize speed cameras that will get you to a strong downs approach. If we were gonna do that, it would have three steps, and I think these three steps are actually pretty easy. The, First step is that you have to ticket the truly deviant. If you go out and do a, a speed zone study and you know, you're issuing tickets to 20%, 30%, 40% or more of drivers, that's a design problem. That is not ticketing deviants. You, you need to deal with the people who are deviating from normal behavior. And so if your normal behavior is unsafe, you have to deal with that first before you deploy the camera. The camera should be deployed to deal with people who are driving outside the norm in a way that is unsafe. The second step then is that we have to pair the deployment of speed cameras with kind of a rapid iterative design change. We have to have an overall commitment to iterating design changes in response to unsafe conditions. Someone responded to me, well, Chuck, you know, instead of the camera, you would go out and put up cones and barrels in the intersection. Aren't people just gonna slow down there and then speed up afterwards, just like they would with the camera? Are they gonna just take alternate routes, just like with the camera? And my answer to that is, yes, that's exactly what they're gonna do. That's why we have to iterate. That's why you can't say like this intersection is the problem because if overall like the, the design of the whole street is a problem but is manifesting at one intersection, fix that intersection and you're just displacing the problem to a different area. We need to have a commitment to iterative change. And so as we deploy a camera, we have to be out there being willing to look at the impacts, the complex kind of changes that happened when we make an intervention in the system and be prepared to, in a very tactical kind of way, go out and deploy devices to make streets safer over time. I'm a huge advocate of cones and barrels and paint and straw bales as a way to get the geometry of the street right. When I go to a city and, and it's full of this kind of stuff, I look and I'm like, this is, this is really great. People are out here trying to figure stuff out. And once you figure it out, once you get the system in a sense working, now you start making things permanent. Now you can turn to your 20 year capital improvements plan and say, okay, this is the most urgent part of this system. Let's prioritize this. This is the second most urgent part. Let's prioritize that. And you can start to build this thing out in a reasonable amount of time in a way that will accelerate safety. 
if you're going to have speed cameras, you've got to find just people who are deviating from the norm and you have to have an overall uh, commitment to iteratively testing out, trying out, measuring and improving streets to make them safer. The third part of this then is that you got to do something with the revenue that is not going to be uh, evolutionary dead end or like a seductive use of it. Can't go into the general fund, right? You ideally would have the revenue from the street camera program fund your iterative response program. You want to buy a thousand cones and put them in a warehouse and a trailer and have them, you fund that with your street camera. You want to have a team that does street design and testing and goes out with different measuring devices and figure out how fast people are going and what the impact of putting a camera here or there is. Fund that with your street camera program. Because what should happen then over time is that as the streets become safer, the need for that function starts to diminish and go away at the same time that your revenue diminishes and goes away. You never want to be in a position where you are resisting doing a street safety change because it's going to cost you revenue. And I'm not suggesting that you know, governments are evil or the people who live in them are evil and they're going to just, you know, take the money and not care about people's lives. That's not how these things work. The way these things work is that we, A, need the money, and so B, our mind justifies a course of action that is less than ideal. I think we have to recognize that up front, recognize that we are all humans, and we have to design these systems in a way where over time, as the speed cameras become less necessary, the thing that they are funding also becomes less necessary. In the remaining couple minutes we have, I wanna talk about one last thing with speed cameras. And I say this for the end because I think a lot of people put this first. I said at the very beginning, I'm not one of these people who is really motivated by the idea that, you know, there's some data privacy kind of stuff or like this is big brother or we're going to live in a police state. I'm not saying those are illegitimate concerns, but it's not the things that motivate me long-term. I'm glad there are people out there who care about that. It's not the thing that I get up in the morning and am motivated on, but I, I do react some degree to this idea and it is pervasive that there's a certain amount of vengeance being meted out here with enforcement cameras. I know that a lot of people, and, and maybe even a lot of you listening to me today, you know, are, want to have a war on cars. And more specifically, want to have a war on the drivers of cars. I have seen, and I had a, a bunch of these thrown in my face uh, recently, when we were having this online Twitter engagement about speed cameras that, you know, drivers are, are horrible people. I was just riding my bike and they pulled up and started yelling at me, or I was here and then they cut me off, or I was doing this, uh, minding my own business. And this person, you know, treated me in some belligerent, cruel way. Trust me, I'm with you. I see this too. I experienced this too. I think that our roads are designed for psychopaths and I think that our roads create then psychopathic behavior. I think that our roads, our streets are designed in a sense to forgive the worst behaviors of drivers and they in a sense induce the worst behaviors in many drivers. That's not universal. 
I actually think that, you know, in our age of social media, sometimes it's a little overblown. If you are driving along a street or you are walking along a street or you are biking through a neighborhood and a thousand vehicles interact with you in some way, and 999 of them are, are decent, respectful human beings, but one is a psychopathic, berserk, cruel person, you will remember that cruel person as your experience in that neighborhood. And that is also a, a, a human reaction. Another human reaction is to feel some sort of satisfaction or some sort of justification with vengeance being meted out on people that you think are bad. I'm not pinning this on safety advocates. I'm pinning this on humans, including myself, right? The schadenfreude is a, is a term that has seeped into American culture because there's something very satisfactory about it, right? Bad people getting their just dues. These are tales as old as time. I think when we are making public policy, we have to be aware of this impulse within ourselves. We have to recognize it. We have to voice it. We have to bring it to the fore and we have to resist it. Because when we act out of vengeance, when we act out of our worst instincts, we become more than anything else easily manipulatable. When people can play on our fears, they teach us to fear. When people can play on our hate, they teach us to hate. When people can make us want a war on this group or that group, they can teach us and reinforce to us that this group or that group is somehow inhuman or less human or not like us in some ways that is divisive. The whole idea of building a strong town is an inclusive notion. It's, it's one that involves all of us working neighborhood by neighborhood, block by block from the bottom up. We have to, as part of this project, see the humanity in everybody around us. We have to start with that as kind of the base insight that everything else builds off of. And so I didn't try to steel man the idea of vengeance because I don't think it's steel manable. I want to bring it to the fore because I, I just want to challenge all of you that have a certain level of satisfaction with the notion that, you know, uh, people who are going 11 miles an hour over the speed limit are getting their due because they're getting a ticket in the mail and, you know, we're going to force them to pay it. And somehow that kind of levels the playing field a little bit. I want you to wrestle with the idea that not only is that not a helpful public policy, not, is that, not only is that not getting us to safe streets or you know, fewer people dying or a reduction in traumatic injury, not only is that not effective as a policy, it's also kind of damaging to our souls. It's damaging to who we are to think that way about people. And it's damaging to the project we're trying to do to allow ourselves to kind of live in that area. Try to identify that, give it voice, give it the light of day, and allow the goodness inside of you to kind of push it to the side. I used a term earlier where I said, AKA victims, and I'm sure some of you kind of paused at that and said, drivers are victims. I know that it's hard 
when a driver acts recklessly, crashes into someone and kills them, it's hard to see the driver as a victim. Um, obviously, the person who's dead is a victim. The person who's crashed into is a victim. And I'm not trying to diminish their hurt or their pain or the suffering that the people have around them by suggesting that the driver is also a victim. But the driver is also a victim. We've created a, a system uh, that is grossly negligent of the users and the danger that the users in that system experience every single day. Because a subset of those users are more vulnerable than others, doesn't mean that the others are not also victims. And I think when we can see that clearly, it gets us away from this idea that somehow street cameras are the answer, that somehow automotive enforcement is a healthy step in the right direction. And it, it gets us asking more serious questions about if we have a problem this big, how do we respond at scale? We respond at scale by throwing out the way we're doing it now, completely rethinking it by having what we as Strong Towns have called a bottom-up revolution, by literally changing the way we do things. And here's the amazing thing about that. We can do it with less money. We can do it with the materials we have on hand. We don't need permission from the state or the federal government to do this differently. We don't need to treat our citizens, the people around us, our friends and our neighbors and the people in our community as horrible monsters that we need to somehow control and, and seek vengeance on. We can treat them with love and compassion and get somewhere beautiful. That's the Strong Towns approach. So thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for being part of this. Go out there with uh, an open heart. Go out there with you know joy and love. I'm not asking you not to be hurt or to stick up for the vulnerable. Do that, but go out and see the totality of this and recognize that we've created a system that is victimizing everybody. And that's the thing that we're fighting. Take care and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, make the city! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.